This is a special edition of Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the premier financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Now, for this special edition of Macro Voices, here's hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. Macro Voices Spotlight, episode number one, was recorded on August 30th, 2019. I'm Eric Townsend. Macro Voices Spotlight is a brand new podcast format we're introducing on Macro Voices. When we began selling advertising spots to sponsors to fund our operating costs, we were immediately inundated by people hoping to buy their way into a feature interview on our flagship Thursday night podcast. We said, no way, and we said it firmly. We're not going to turn Macro Voices into an infomercial, and we are absolutely dedicated to never adopting a pay-to-play model. We will always choose our interview guests based on what we believe you, the listener, want to hear most. But this has presented something of a conundrum because, frankly, some of our sponsors are actually very interesting people whom I'd like to interview. So to resolve this conundrum, we created Macro Voices Spotlight as a separate and distinct entity. In the interest of full disclosure, Macro Voices Spotlight guests are sponsors who may have paid a promotional fee to appear on Macro Voices Spotlight. But that doesn't mean that we're getting into the infomercial business. We're going to be very selective and only offer Macro Voices Spotlight interviews to guests who, in our judgment, really have something to say that is likely to be of interest to our listeners, and not just a commercial for their product or service. My guest on today's episode is Niels Kastrup Larsen, host of the Top Traders Unplugged podcast and also the sponsor who makes it possible for us to give away the flagship podcast for free each week on Thursday evenings. Niels is an expert on commodity trading advisors, or CTAs, and the trend-following algorithmic trading strategies that they use to deliver uncorrelated returns to investors. Now, these CTAs are the algorithmic traders that you've heard Nomura's Charlie McElligot talk so much about on Macro Voices. And you might be surprised to learn in today's interview that as an insider in the CTA world, Niels actually disagrees with some of Charlie's views on the influence that CTAs have on financial markets. My guest for next week's Spotlight will be an expert on private vaulting of precious metals. In keeping with our theme of focusing more on precious metals as interest rates collapse toward zero, we're going to discuss all the trade-offs of unallocated, allocated, and segregated bullion accounts and what the options are that are available to high net worth investors for storing their gold bullion. You might be surprised by some of the hidden risks that exist in precious metals storage and vaulting services, and we're going to have a deep dive into that subject next week. Going forward, we're only going to accept Macro Voices Spotlight interviews when we can be persuaded that the message that the guest is delivering is something that our audience will actually enjoy learning about. We're not going to get into the infomercial business. Please let us know what you think about this new format after you've listened to this week's inaugural episode. There's a slide deck for today's interview on trend following with Niels Kastrup Larsen, and you can find the download link on our homepage at macrovoices.com right next to Niels' picture. My interview with Niels is coming up right after this.
Joining me now is Niels Kastrup Larsen, who hosts the Top Traders Unplugged podcast. And in his day job, Niels heads up European and Asian business development for Dunn Capital Management. Niels, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Let's start with the broad topic of algorithmic trading generally. Computers rather than human traders placing the trades. Now, one aspect of this that we hear about quite a bit is so-called high-frequency trading, where super-fast computers and networks are used to literally jump in line in front of other traders for order fulfillment. But high-frequency trading is just one of many different algorithmic strategies. And unlike high-frequency trading, most of them do not involve these very, very short sub-millisecond transaction times. Please give our listeners an introduction to what some of the other kinds of algorithmic strategies are where computers are doing the trading. How do they work? Who's behind them? And what impact do they have on the operation of financial markets? Hey, Eric. Thanks so much, first of all, for inviting me to uh, Macrovoices. I'm a big fan of your show, so I very much look forward to our conversation today. Now, so if we start out with kind of the basic definition of quant-based strategies, it's essentially strategies that are based on quantitative analysis as opposed to qualitative analysis. And they rely on some kind of mathematical computation or number crunching, I guess, to identify opportunities in the markets. And therefore, these strategies in particular lend themselves well to the use of computers. But of course, let's not forget that there's always real people, at least for the most part, behind these models, if not the computer doing or calling the shots, so to speak. You know, perhaps the best known systematic investment strategy is, is just a simple index tracker where positions are updated each quarter, or each month, depending on certain rules for the inclusion in, in the index. But of course, most people don't really think about index trackers as being sort of systematic strategies. So if we go back in time, I would say about 25 years ago, so a strategy known as statistical arbitrage emerged which is really at the root of a number of uh, relative value strategy and is one of the oldest quant-based strategies, I would say. And essentially what statistical arbitrage is doing is trying to look for similar stocks or bonds for that matter and, and calculating the, the, the fair price. And if one of these securities starts to deviate from the average fair price, then the strategy is designed to buy anything that's underpriced, so to speak, and and short things that are overpriced and there are a lot of um, a lot of hedge fund strategies today that are really based on that original concept more recently with increased computer power of course i think about 15 years ago or so we began to see a new breed of of quant based strategies and they are known as high frequency trading as 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 you mentioned and of course what they try to exploit is really speed and and they because of the way they operate, they certainly attract a lot of attention. Uh, books have been written about them and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, anything that requires super fast execution, I would say, falls under that heading. And then more recently, I would say a new type of quantitative strategies have emerged, often referred to as, as alternative data strategies. I mean, the world is getting more digital for sure. So we have a lot of data to collect, whether it's you know credit data or how many oil tankers are sailing around the globe or trucks on the road. Of course, we have all the social media data 
that we know uh, are being sold, web traffic, credit card, whatever it might be. So they're using a different kind of data, not really priced based as as we're used to for the most part in, in our industry to, uh, again, see opportunities in the markets. And of course, we don't really know what the next thing is going to be and, 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 and what's common today will probably, for some, be obsolete in the future. But perhaps with one exception and one strategy, which I didn't mention, and that's the oldest of all of these quant-based or rule-based strategies, and which still works even today, and, and that's, that's trend following. Let's go ahead and move on to that most popular strategy of trend following. Uh, it's fascinating to me that, you know, it's it's not that hard of an idea. You would think the opportunity for that to be profitable would somehow be arbitraged out of the market because of too many people doing it. But it seems like it just keeps working. And one of my favorite ways to explain trend following is the story of Richard Dennis and his turtles. Now, you're one of the few people, the only person I've met who actually has had the privilege of interviewing Richard Dennis personally. So I'm looking forward to your version of that story. Well, first of all, let me say, I don't think, unfortunately, trend following is one of the most popular strategies, probably one of them, the least popular strategies, really, but it is one of the oldest. And, and I think it's, you know, obviously, I think it's a great strategy having worked with it for, for three decades now. Um, now, the story of the turtles, it is a great story, as as you say. And and it's a story for me that I've had some experience with. Uh, one, as you mentioned, I'm one of few who have actually interviewed Richard Dennis. A conversation that, of course, that your listeners are welcome to to uh, find on my own podcast. Um, but in 1996, I was asked to join what I think is fair to say the most successful of the Turtles, Jerry Parker's firm, and come and work for him. So my relationship with the story, so to speak, goes back uh, quite a way. And even today, I actually do a weekly podcast with Jerry Parker on the topic of trend following and and systematic uh, trading, which which I really enjoy. But it's also a story that's been, how can I put it, sensationalized in the press over the years. And not everything about the story, as told in the press, I would say is 100% accurate. But of course, it dates back 35 years, so so it's it can be hard to remember all, all the details. But essentially... It's a story about uh, Richard Dennis, at the time a very successful futures trader in Chicago, and his friend Bill Eckhart, and how they created a four-year experiment to answer the question whether or not successful traders are born, or if you can teach them the skills, um, you know, the essentially the nature versus nurture question. And... Um, a lot of uh, a lot of stories have been told about how there was a bet between Dennis and and Eckhart after they had watched this movie with Eddie Murphy called uh, Trading Places. But the truth is, at least according to Richard Dennis himself, is that there was no bet, and it had nothing to do with with the movie. But in fact, he also shared with me that this was an idea that he thought of while sitting one afternoon drinking some Johnny Walker Black whiskey. So slightly different to what uh, what what you've read in the press. But anyway, in order to test the idea, they hired about 20 people over two years. Uh, I think there was 12 people, or turtles, in the first year and about eight of them in the second year. And they had very different backgrounds. Um, they put them into these two classes, uh, class of 84 and class of 85. And both classes were given about two or three weeks of training in what rules they should follow. 
when they should buy, when they should sell, how much to risk. And they were also provided kind of a, a framework, an environment, an office essentially, where they could do and work and, and do their trading. And I think once a year, they were given like a full day with Richard Dennis where they could uh, discuss and evaluate how, how things were going. The turtles, they were also provided actually each day some data from the people running the experiment, such as how many contracts to trade per unit of risk. Also, uh, to calculate volatility, they were given some average to range numbers by them. But to cut a long story short, I mean, the turtles ended up making a lot of money. And therefore, I guess it's always been regarded as a big success and proved that you can teach people to become successful investors if, and it's a big if, if they're prepared to go down the road of being uh, you know, a completely rules-based investor. Niels, there's something I've always wondered about that story. And since you heard it directly from Richard Dennis, maybe you can clarify this. But from several of those sensationalized press reports, they make it sound as if the turtles somehow thought they had been given this super secret magic sauce that that magically made incredible profits possible. And uh, most of them, I think they all became millionaires and, and were very successful. And this is despite the fact they were ordinary people with no particularly strong aptitude. That was the whole point of Richard Dennis's experiment, was to see if you could teach an average person to be a successful trader. But from everything I've heard, they all thought they had the big secret to the point that they swore never to share the strategy, to keep it secret within this group of 20 or so people uh, in the Turtles. But when I heard one of them sort of uh, come out and expose the strategy, it sounded to me like almost exactly the same thing that I had read years before in John Murphy's technical analysis of futures markets, where it was described as a four-week rule. And, and it's, uh, it was actually on page 216 of Murphy. And as far as I could understand, what they're talking about is the same trend-following strategy that's been around for a long time, that's not a secret, that a lot of people knew about. So is there really some magic secret that the turtles were taught by Richard Dennis and sworn to secrecy over? Or did they just learn something that was a, a well-known practice? I certainly remember all the secrecy. And even when I worked for, for Jerry Parker, there's a lot of secrecy back then about what the strategy was actually doing. Um, the, the way I see it is that the price breakout methodology based on the findings actually by Richard Donchin, described in, in Murphy's book, has a lot of similarities to what Dennis taught uh, the turtle. I, was go, I mean, I would go to, uh, as far as to say that, that one of the two systems the turtles traded is very close to the four-week rule system. But the turtles would actually instead use a two-week exit, which is a little bit different, even though I think it's mentioned in the book as well. Now, the uh, the turtles used two systems, and the other system they used were based on the same methodology, but it was based on a factor of, of that system with a bit longer time frame. But I think to answer your question, I think what Dennis did for the turtles that you don't read in the book was to provide the full framework of how to trade these rules. I think that I think that was the secret sauce, really, how to size your positions, how many markets to trade, how to diversify and manage your portfolio risk. And perhaps most importantly, he created this mentorship to these young traders that meant that they did not get punished, so to speak, for losing money as long as they were following the rules. 
And I know from my long-standing relationship with, with Jerry Parker that this is one, if not the most important aspect of the whole turtle experiment because it allowed these people enough time to get fully convinced that applying trend-following techniques with 100% discipline will generate substantial profits over time, but also that it's okay to have volatility in your returns and it's okay to have losing periods. That's just part of the, the journey. Now, back in Richard Dennis's day, you had to have a huge amount of personal discipline because trend following was a systematic approach, but there were no computers involved. They, people actually sat and kept track of charts and waited for buy or sell signals based on this set of rules that they were given. And then they would manually put a trade on by calling a good old-fashioned broker up on the phone and say, hey, buy this futures contract or sell this or whatever. When did this business of trend following get computerized and how much capital does it take to set up the computers that you need in order to, to do this? And it, it, for that matter, is it still possible? Do you have to do it with computers? Has it gotten to the point where the computers will, will beat a human trader if a human tries to do it? What's the, the barrier of entry, if you will, to doing this? How much computing power do you need? Sure. I mean, maybe to answer your last question or last part of the question first, I think today, I think it is essential to have computer power and to automate it completely for sure. But but back when the turtles were around, you know, there was actually one computer in the office uh, of the turtles. I'm told it was an Apple computer, <laughs> but they they only used it to play computer baseball in the room next to the to the office. I've also been told that that they're actually uh, some of the second year turtles, so to speak. They started to get interested in, in doing some kind of research and, and backtest probably in around 1986 or so. But it wasn't like, as you said, it wasn't like any of the turtles had computers on, on, on each of their desks or anything like that. So, so they were essentially given the results of, of Richard Dennis verbally and his research verbally. And then they were expected to, to take notes and, and incorporate that in, into their trading. But as mentioned before, things like ATR numbers, average to range numbers and maximum contracts, that was actually given to them each day. I know from my, my conversations with Jerry over the years that, that he did not start to computerize his strategy until 1988 when he started his own firm. And I know you have a background in, in computers, so uh, so this might be interesting to, to you and, and to others. But he started using something called System Rider, which I think is the precursor to TradeStation. So that's how he got started. But, I mean, the turtle story is great, you know, but I think a lot of people think the trend following began with the turtles. But the fact is that it actually started uh, way early, and it can certainly be traced back to the early 1970s in terms of firms that still exist. And one of those firms is actually the firm that I work for today, Don Capital Management, which was founded uh, by Bill Don back in 1974. And in, in his case, Bill and, and, and at the time his young son, Daniel, they used punch cards from the very beginning in 1974. Um, they had a code called 4TRAN, which you may know or may not. And then you know, the data in, in terms of the punch cards were loaded into a kind of a big mainframe computer somewhere in Virginia and queued up for execution. And then the output of that would be all the buy and sell trigger prices for all the liquid futures markets uh, at the time. And then in the late 1970s, a big computer like filing cabinet size computer was purchased and then used in the office for, for all of these uh, calculations. So in terms of computerization, I would say that others, uh, certainly in our shop, 
we were probably about 10 years earlier than, uh, than the turtles were in, in that sense. Now, Niels, in many ways, today's interview is not really about macroeconomics, the usual theme for macro voices. But in a way, it is. I've seen quite a few people in the macro space. One notably is Charlie McElligot from Nomura. Now, he's a macro guy through and through. But as a macro analyst, one of his strongest held views is that it really pays to keep an eye on trend-following CTAs because their activities, there's so much capital under management with trend-following these days because it is a very effective strategy. Basically, they move the market so much that if you can anticipate the inflection points where the market is either going to reverse direction or accelerate based on what the CTAs do, from a macro investor standpoint, it gives you a huge bit of edge to have that perception of where those inflection points are going to be. So how much money are CTAs actually managing? How big is this market? How much of it is being put to work on trend-following strategies? And how much does it affect the marketplace? Sure. I mean, I don't like to disappoint your your great audience here, but but I, I think I might have to do it in this case because I really don't think that the CTA footprint is is great to any extent compared to what what other people like Charlie Mary Elliott is thinking. The official number in terms of assets under management for CTAs is around $340 billion today. It's been pretty stable for years, not grown a lot, frankly. And firms like Bridgewater, Ray Dalio's firm Bridgewater, is a huge percentage of uh, of the 340 billion and I'm not even sure that they really should be classified as as a CTA let alone a, a trend follower. So I think what's at play here could be that there are more investors around the world who are in fact using trend following techniques to decide on how and and when to trade which kind of goes to show that this style of investing uh, really is timeless, robust and profitable. I also think that a lot of people don't want to be labeled a trend follower because, you know, by default, that kind of implies also a few negative things such as, oh, so you're doing a strategy that by definition is volatile and unpredictable in the short term. So to me, when I hear these things about the importance of CTA's footprint in the markets, I don't really share that, to be to be uh, frank. That's very interesting because Charlie's so convinced that trend followers move the markets that they've gone to great lengths to build an elaborate computer model. It's essentially a a trend-following algorithm model, but they don't use it to trade any trend-following strategy. They use it to model the strategies that CTAs are using in order to anticipate their next moves. And almost every day, Charlie publishes the key inflection points, which Nomura has basically modeled and anticipated. They say, this is the price level at which we predict trend-following algorithms in CTAs will be triggered to start buying or selling, and that will affect the rest of the market. Now, you've worked with this industry, Niels, from the inside, so, so you know how these algorithms really work. It, it sounds like, from what you've said already, you don't really believe that the CTAs have as big of a footprint as Charlie seems to think. In your opinion, is it accurate to try to predict the CTA industry as a whole by by modeling price levels? In other words, is it possible for me to come up with a certain price level in the S&P and say, okay, this is where the CTAs are going to start buying or start selling? Or is it more the case that every different CTA has a different algorithm and their price points are all going to be different? And I guess also, please give our listeners some insight into how 
you would recommend that they interpret when somebody like Charlie publishes these levels saying, look, this is the CTA trigger level. You're an insider in the CTA market. Would you give credence to that as an indicator as to what the market's going to do? Or do you think it's, it's not really having the relevance? It sounds like maybe not. I mean, maybe I should preface by saying I don't want to sound critical of, of other people's work per se, but, but I also have opinions about it. And what you what you raise this issue, I think, is quite quite interesting um, because, as you say, you know, uh, here you have a bank that's essentially trying to anticipate through their analysis and share it publicly the signals of CTAs. Some, I'm sure, are, are even clients of of the bank. And as far as I understand, you know, they're mainly focusing on on equity markets, maybe some some fixed income markets. I mean, I can see for sure that it can create some some great headlines and, and narrative in, in the press. But I also see a few problems with this whole approach. First of all, I would say CTA strategies or trend-following strategies, they lose money on about 60% of all the signals. So I don't really see why you would publish, let alone follow signals that for the most of the time will be wrong. Now, of course, if you're a bank trying to get your investors to to trade, that that you know could make sense. But if you're really trying to help investors make money, I think it's a little bit you know I'm not so sure that that would be a strategy I would recommend. Now the other problem we have, I mean, there are several problems. The other problem is if you're only looking at at uh, a single sector like stocks and bonds, you miss out on on something incredibly important, completely fundamental for the success of a CTA strategy, and that's diversification. And especially diversification in less correlated market like commodities. So a profitable CTA strategy can easily have a period of a few years where essentially they don't make any money in equities or any money in bonds and where the profits come from from other sectors in the portfolio. So one of the biggest problems we have today is that people might read about, you know, trend following and the turtles and think, oh, you know, I can do that. It's simple. I'll find a couple of moving averages or a breakout system and a few stocks and I'll become a millionaire in no time. But that's unfortunately under how it works in reality because they they miss out of this sort of essential element, which is, you know, how do I size my positions? And, and also you have to apply all of the signals with 100% laser discipline for years before you can really meaningfully say whether it's working or, or not. So when I hear people say that CTAs will be buying and selling heavily at a certain price level, I, I just think it's too simplistic and not really how we do it in reality. Of course, there are some CTAs that will use stop orders and therefore you can talk about perhaps specific price levels that can trigger some activity. But I would say firstly that not all CTAs use stops. And of course, as you alluded to, even if they do use stops, they may not use the same stops. And also I would say the industry as a whole, certainly uh, uh, among the bigger managers, we've really evolved away from using stops in general to much more position management on a more frequent way and, and, and using smaller increments of changing our positions. And this is because nowadays we, we manage risk differently. It's uh, more based on um, you know holistic and statistical approach to the overall risk of the portfolio. And, and in the old days when the turtles were around, it was much more of a trade-by-trade trade method to, to manage risk. And so, so we on, on our side as a firm, we've certainly also evolved to, to this newer way of doing it. And I think maybe the final point I want to add to all of this, and that is that 
people should also be aware that that trend following triggers are not only based on on price. We look at time. Time is very important. Volatility, correlations. So only focusing on a price level when we talk about signal generation and changes in positions, in my opinion at least, it's it's not sufficient anymore. Niels, I want to really take a deep dive into the trend-following strategy itself. Why don't we start with who it's suitable for, who it's not suitable for, and what the advantages and disadvantages are of this strategy versus uh, other common strategies? Sure, of course. So when I started back in the industry about 30 years ago, it really was a strategy. And the consensus was that it was only for wealthy investors. Like most hedge funds back then, you, you know, probably driven by regulation, of course, where you had to be able to prove that you were an accredited investor with a certain level of income or a certain level of wealth. I would say, luckily, today, we as as CTAs, we have products now that um, are still based on the same strategy that we can offer to accredited investors, but they can now also be bought through mutual funds or CTA mutual funds with daily liquidity, et cetera. I think that's a great thing for the industry and for the investors, because in, in my opinion, I think the strategy is suitable for all investors. And that might sound strange to people, because here you have a strategy, certainly with a, a reasonable amount of volatility, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the, the day, in my opinion, in building a uh, portfolio to to build true wealth over time, it's about combining uncorrelated investments, such as equities and bonds, of course, real estate, but certainly also trend following. Trend following is has, has over time no correlation at all with equities and bonds. Now, clearly, there are some advantages, there's some disadvantages. The disadvantages compared to other strategies, people might feel that it's volatile, and it is. So if you if you equate volatility with risk, then you might get a little bit scared. But in my opinion, those two things are, are not the same. Then you have the fees, a lot of focus on fees, of course. And, and fees, you know, with some firms, with some uh, funds are too high. I, I would agree with that. But, you know, there are also good managers you can find at very reasonable fees. And then, of course, the other disadvantage in, in many investors' view is that, you know, the strategy don't make money in a consistent way. It's It can be very lumpy. You can have six months, small losses, and suddenly you make it all back in, in a month or two. Those are some of the disadvantages. I would say the advantages for sure is that, to me, it's proven that it's uh, timeless. You know, it worked back in the 70s for firms that are still around. We know anecdotally there are people back in, in the 50s and 60s that use the same techniques very profitably. So, to me, at least, it's it's a, it's a timeless uh, strategy. Of course, to some extent, at least, it's based on human nature, human behavior, and and that doesn't change in 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 my view, in the long run. It's been proven to be robust. I mean, we've had lots of problems in the world in the last 40, 50 years, from wars to natural disaster to trade wars, and and so on and so forth. And it's it's come up on top, but not all the time. But but in the long run. It's uncorrelated, uh, as I mentioned before. Uh, I think that's uh, incredibly important when building uh, uh, portfolios. And then, of course, maybe one of the, the key things to this uncorrelation is the fact that it's not based on a long-only approach. I mean, we can be long and short as easily because we trade futures and they're exchange-traded. So counterparty risk is also something we have much less of compared to other strategies. So I think there's definitely um you know a good case for why as many investors as possible should have 
a portion of their assets at least allocated to to these strategies. Niels, I think the point that you made about there being almost no correlation to the equity market is particularly important. And frankly, this, uh, I'll admit, is biased by my own current market perception, my, my own current market view, which is I think this equity market is at some very, very lofty levels right now. And uh, I've been surprised it's lasted this long. It might last even longer, and uh, I'll be even more surprised. But at some point, I think gravity is going to set in. And so I'm particularly curious to know how trend following performs in a market crash scenario or a deep bear market, because I would assume if you're following a trend and the trend is up that, you know, you're going to have some some loss exposure in a crash situation, at least initially, but probably you end up making that back once you get on the right side of the trend. How does this tend to work out? Let's suppose there was another 2008 that happened in the stock market and uh, stock index futures were behaving uh, accordingly. How would this play out for trend following strategies? Sure. I think, I mean, I think you hit on, on, on a very important point because one of the key misunderstandings about trend following is that for many years, it has been sold as kind of a hedge to, to equities. And of course, after 2008, where trend following strategies did really, really well, um, the story sold even better. But in my opinion, you know, you have to view a trend following strategy as this uncorrelated return stream. And given that, you know, people like Ray Dalio, after he he retired, he shared a lot of of uh, information and, 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 and he's really come out and said, you know, the key to his success really was you know, identifying 15 or so uncorrelated return streams. And trend following certainly fits into that because there hasn't really been any meaningful correlation in, in the long run. But to go, to go back to your question, you know, trend following has always had two main weaknesses, if I can put it like that. And that, that usually causes negative performance and, and drawdowns. And one is the, the sudden reversal that you're talking about, maybe the fear now, right now, where equity markets are. So sudden reversal, like we saw in February of 2018, uh, definitely an example of that. And the other one is, of course, a period where there are no trends. We, we can't make money in, in those. There are, the t- two periods will be different because in the sudden reversal scenario, especially if we're on the wrong side of, of that reversal, then you know, we lose a lot of money in a short space of time. In the kind of uh, no trend environment, we we tend to lose a little bit of money, but it can stretch over, you know, a few months. So if we had a sudden crash in equities, you know, we can't really say in advance whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for trend followers, because it really depends on all the other positions we have in, in the portfolio at the time. So for example, um, you know, right now we're long gold and long bonds. Um, so if they continue to go up, if we were to have a crash, it may be okay. But really, as I said before, it's 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 impossible to predict in advance the the performance ahead of an event. If, on the other hand, we had one of these protracted bear markets in a more orderly form, maybe then, of course, at least you could say that the historic evidence is that trend following strategy should do very well, but. You know, we, we we live in a world where kind of one of the core philosophies is that, you know, knowing what you don't know. So I have to be, um, you know, I have to be um, in line with that and, and say it's impossible to predict how trend followers will perform during the next crisis. But, but the advantage we have as trend followers, at least we can say, is that when you have big enough trends, whether they're up or down, we will eventually 
get on the right side of them. And that's the power of of having a price-based trading approach uh, with no, how can I put it, subjective decision-making. There's a concept, Niels, called conditional correlation. I believe you've got a slide in your slide deck about it. And I think it's really important to understand. So please explain, what is conditional correlation and why is it so important? Okay, sure. It kind of goes back to the point about being an uncorrelated return stream. So in the very long run, as I said, there really isn't any correlation between stocks, bonds, and and trend following. But it doesn't mean that the correlation is zero all the time. So, for example, during periods where, say, U.S. equities have done really well, and and let's just say that trend followers were also doing well, the correlation will be positive. Years like 2014, 2017 comes to mind when I think about that. But then, of course, you have periods like the tech bubble and the global financial crisis, where stocks, you know, had really large losses. At the same time, trend followers were delivering some very strong positive returns. And in those cases, or in those periods, at least you could say the correlation is negative. So conditional correlation really just means that it depends on the condition and the market environment. But the most important point to remember is that because it's an uncorrelated return stream, then including a trend following strategy in your overall portfolio can actually, as again, Ray Dalio has, uh, has uh, been out saying, it can actually improve your overall return of your portfolio at the same time as uh, reducing the overall risk, which of course is, is a great thing to have in, in a portfolio. Let's get into the nitty gritty of how these strategies actually work. So please walk us through a specific example of trend-following algorithms. What is the computer actually doing? Let's use the S&P 500 because it's familiar to so many people. And talk us through, and I think you've got a series of slides in the slide deck that you can refer our listeners to. Tell us exactly what the computer's doing and how it follows a trend. Sure, sure. Yeah, so in the slide deck, we we put in three charts of, of an actual example, and we used the S&P as, um, as the market we were going to illustrate with. And so on page 16, that's just the market price of the S&P from, I think, early 2016 until a couple of months ago. And then on slide 17, I show a trend-following model, which is what I would refer to as one of the newer ways of doing trend following it's it's more sensitive to uh, market prices and market moves compared to the old style which i'll come to in in a, in a second but when people look at this chart uh, what they should see is one day they, they see the the price of the s&p but they also see the actual signals generated by this kind of of methodology and so what they see is Generally speaking, when market moved down in, in 2016, the model was short. Obviously, at some point, the market starts to recover, starts to break out to uh, to new highs that uh, essentially triggers the model to go flat initially and then go long and and, and enjoy you know the uptrend for, for a year or so. Then we have a kind of a flat period in the S&P where the model also goes neutral before the next kind of leg up where it makes you know, starts initially to build up the position and or the signal strength and and actually gets to a kind of a full long signal during that uptrend we see. And then we have another couple of periods where there's a bit of neutrality, there's a bit of trend, and you see that reflected in the signal until we get this sort of beautiful uptrend again, pretty strong, which is uh, around, I think, 2017. 
clearly into uh, into February of 2018, there is some some uh, a big pullback in in the S and P, and and the model goes flat for a while, and then it enjoys you know a bit of a run up until we get to Q4 of last year, where initially it goes flat, and then it goes short into you know that debacle and that uh, you know kind of bear market we just got to in in December of 2018. So it gives you it gives people an idea of of the sensitivity in this kind of approach. And then the next slide, slide 18. I took another type of trend following more in style with the turtles, actually kind of a breakout style methodology. Again, this is based on a medium to long-term trend following methodology. And here you'll see a completely different way of trading the same market where, yes, initially in 2016, when the markets were moving down, that the, the model was short. It had to get back into the long side of the of the market as the market started to break out on the upside. But it then really stayed long all the way through from, say, 2016, all the way through to the fourth quarter of 2018. So quite a long stretch to, to stay long. It rode out a bit of volatility. So that's the difference, so to speak. It It's less sensitive. And then went short into Q4, made some money from that. But of course, now we are in you know August of 2019, and, and the model obviously is, is long again because of what's happened in, in between. But it gives, I think it gives maybe your listeners an idea of what these models do. And most importantly, it's this logical sense of when, you know, because the, our core philosophy is that markets that go up will attract buyers and markets that go down will attract more sellers. That's kind of the one of the core philosophies of, of trend following. So it's important for people to see the logical way the model reacts. So when pr- prices do go up, sure. It's long. When prices flatten out, then maybe it maybe it goes neutral. And then when you have these down moves of a certain size, it can go short and, and try to profit from that. One thing that is quite interesting though about trend following, which is maybe not publicized very much by by people writing kind of the popular press about trend following, and that is if you did trend following over a very long period of time and you use one of these classical models, say like the on slide 18 most of the profits will come from the long-sided trades, not the short-sided trades, which is quite interesting, I find at least. So even though the short-sided trades can be incredibly important because it can help you make money right at the time where you need it, in the long run, we make more money on the long-sided trends. And of course, as we're looking at these series of slides, we're looking just at the S&P 500, and your computer would be trading simultaneously a number of different positions. So when you're flat for months at a time in the S&P, you might be long copper and and short gold, or or who knows what the, the particular combination is based on the signals that the computers are processing. Now, one of the things that I've heard about trend following is that arguably one of the biggest shortcomings of the strategy is that human nature causes a lot of investors to get spooked out of it. If you imagine, you know, reading the turtles book and uh, trying to do it yourself at the beginning of a uh, left side of, of page 18 here, where the red stops and it turns blue, it's like, okay, this feels good for a little while. There's that sudden spike down just a few months into that long position. And, you know, people get spooked out and oh, it's not working and they end up giving up at the worst possible time. Is that the reason that trend following hasn't become more popular? Is that the volatility shakes people out? And if so, what can be done about that? Is it something you can overcome by having more positions being traded simultaneously so they equalize one another out? 
Sure, absolutely. I mean, just maybe to come back to your initial comment, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, most trend-following firms that have been around and have a certain size, they will be trading you know, many, many different markets. In our case, we trade 55, but it's across all the sectors from commodities to financials. But there are also firms that will trade 100 markets or 200 markets. I'm not necessarily convinced that that you get more diversification by doing that, but you certainly get more capacity if you wish to become very large in, in this space. Going back to your other point about, uh, you know, investors bailing out at the wrong time. I mean, trend following for sure is not easy. It may sound easy when you read it in a book, but it's very hard to do on a day-to-day basis because a lot of what you're being asked to do is to go against your your human instinct. I mean, when I started in this industry in the mid-80s as a bond trader, I mean, of course, we were kind of of the opinion that buy low, sell high, that's, that's, the, that's what you have to do. Trend following is opposite. We actually buy high. And we sell low because we're buying breakouts or selling breakouts to the downside. So it goes directly 180 degrees against what we think is you know, a good strategy. So that makes it really hard to do in practice. Now, the founder of our firm, Bill Don, he, he used to have this saying in the office where he said, you know, the best time to invest in trend following is at the bottom of a drawdown. The second best time is today. And I think that's really true because... We all have human biases, and some of them, for sure, are not good when it comes to to investing. I mean, we often analyze you know situations in terms of possibilities instead of probabilities. So, of course, when if you're in a trend following strategy and you're down twenty five percent from the high, some investors will will get scared and and think it's likely to get even worse, even if history and you can show them track records. That, that might show that usually this is the right time to to get into the strategy. But of course, you know, this also goes for investing in stocks. I mean, we all know a lot of people bailed out of, of um, you know, at the near the bottom of, of the financial crisis and, and the tech bubble. So sometimes the best advice can be, um, you know, do nothing. And, and I think some people have said, you know, doing nothing is also doing something. And I think that's true. But but I will caution with one thing, and that is when you deal with a long-only strategy, then the drawdowns can get a lot worse, like we saw during these two most recent crises. And I think it's important to remember that the S&P is essentially an 8 or 9% return strategy with a 50-plus percent drawdown profile, which we see from time to time. And trend following, I would certainly say, has a much, much better return to risk profile. But it's hard. And I think there was this story out about Fidelity, where they realized that those of their clients who did best in with their portfolio accounts were clients who had forgotten that they had the account in the first place. So they just let the investment sit there. <laughs> That's a good story. I want to share with our audience a little bit of a, a backstory of putting this interview together. I really wanted to ask Niels to share some specific numbers. Don't just tell me that's got good performance. I want to see what the actual numbers look like. Unfortunately, the compliance department got in the way of that. So the version of the slide deck that is available to all of our listeners, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, you can find the download link on our homepage 
page at macrovoices.com. It does not have any performance data in it. For those of you who are accredited investors, you can get the accredited version of the slide deck that has all the performance numbers. Unfortunately, we cannot, for compliance reasons, mention those performance numbers on the air. If you want the non-redacted version of the slide deck, just go to toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro slides. Again, that's toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro slides. And you will have to go through a questionnaire to evidence that you are an accredited investor before they give you the download link. That was the best that we could do. And it was <laughs> a fair amount of work on Neil's part negotiating with his compliance department just to get them to allow us to do that. Neil's for the benefit of our accredited investor audience who was able to download the slides that actually have the performance numbers. I want to say that the numbers that I'm looking at on these slides, although I'm not at liberty to state them on the air, on this final slide for the MSCI World Equity Index versus the trade following strategy, they're rather different to say the very least. So if these results are typical and repeatable, why isn't trend following even more popular than it is? It seems like between the portfolio construction benefits of decorrelation from equity investments and the fact that if you're willing to tolerate a little bit of uh, volatility along the way, the returns are really impressive. So surely somebody somewhere must have looked into making this strategy available. I think you said earlier in the interview that there are now vehicles that allow non-accredited investors to get in on trend-following strategies. Uh, why is it that we don't hear more about them? It seems like uh, from what I see of the performance numbers here, we, we ought to be talking about them quite a bit more. So what's going on here? So, I mean, of course, you can't say necessarily that these results are, are typical, meaning We've been in business for 45 years. I would say we are one of the top performers. In fact, uh, only a few years ago, we were number four, ranked number four on the Barron's top 100 hedge funds in the world. And I think that's the highest ranking of, of any CTA. So, of course, we, um, you know, we may not have the sort of the typical performance numbers compared to, to our competition. But I will say, which is interesting, and that is, you know, Improving a strategy like what we do is something we do all the time, right? We it's it's a process of continuous research and and finding small ways of becoming better, and and I think in 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 our case at least we we have been able to deliver that. So uh, in in many ways, I would say our more recent returns, maybe in the last five six years, to some extent, you you could argue are, are better, uh, certainly from a risk adjusted point of view, than the uh, very long track record now. We started in 74. The current strategy goes back to 84. So it's it's quite a long track record. And you don't find many discretionary traders that has been around for, for that long. So, of course, we, we hope that that inspires people to uh, consider that as, as, a, as a real alternative. But the great news, Eric, is that in the last few years, as mentioned, it has now been possible for a much broader audience to get exposure to trend following. You know, of course, we have to highlight that, that when you talk about products for retail investors, i.e. Non, non-accredited investors, the fees are usually higher. But if I take off my podcast hat and, and wear my Don hat for just a second, I would say in our case, we actually charge the same because we've never charged, uh, which makes us a little bit unusual. <laughs> we, we've never charged a management fee to our clients for the 45 years we've been in business. We, we only get paid 
a performance fee when our clients make new net profits. So in our U.S. mutual fund, for example, the fees are a little bit higher because of the administration cost to the platform providers are higher. But we actually get paid exactly the same, whether it's for a non-accredited or an accredited investor. And and so I think that makes makes a difference. And I also hope that that it will allow over time a lot more people to benefit from these strategies. Now, we are not the only ones who have these mutual funds. So I think there's there's definitely a fair amount of choice by now. The challenge, I guess, for us as an industry to become mainstream is that we we have to convince the banks who have the platforms on which all the clients sit and the investment advisors, et cetera, et cetera. We have to convince them to invest in these. And as I'm sure you know, from your experience, banks are not necessarily the easiest to uh, to deal with. And of course, they might have to some extent, some competing low-cost, cheap replicator products they would rather sell to their clients. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a challenge for us to become better known and, and mainstream as as an investment strategy, I would say. Niels, unfortunately we're about out of time for this interview, but I want to cover a couple of resources that people who want to find out more about this can follow. The, the most obvious one, of course, is the Top Traders Unplugged podcast, which you host, where you talk in depth about how some of these algorithmic strategies work and what makes them tick and how, how the algorithms are designed and, and all the rest. But you also wrote a book going into more detail than we had time to cover today on how trend following works. And you're offering that book to Macro Voices listeners free of charge. So please tell them how they can claim their free copy. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So uh, if you if you want a copy of the book, you can just go to toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro. And I will certainly also take the opportunity to to thank a lot of your of your audience that have already uh, already downloaded the book. I, I very much appreciate that. Now, I also want to say that this is not a book that is written with all the formulas of how to do trend following. This is this is meant as an introduction on how trend following can be used as a concept for many types of, of investors. And of course, if people really want to get into the nitty gritty of that, then then of course, uh, you know, find a few trend following firms that where you can go to their website and dig in a bit deeper. But I think the book is is hopefully a good starting point. And Neil, something I can share with the audience from my own experience, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, is frankly, the book is pretty high level. It's an introduction for someone who wants a very, very simple explanation of what this is about. If anyone feels turned off by that and you wanted a little bit more meat, the podcast is the place to look. Because where the book is very high level, the podcast, at least the, the episodes that I've listened to, have gone into quite a bit more detail about the nitty gritty of how these algorithms strategies work, how they're designed, what some of the factors are that go into engineering the, the software that, that trades it and so forth. Uh, is that an accurate description, Niels? And what would you say for our listeners, many Macro Voices listeners, I think want to go a little deeper than what the book covers? Sure. I mean, uh, absolutely true. And uh, I think the podcast is is the right place then to, uh, to, to start. I mean, not only do I do these weekly conversations uh, with with Jerry Parker and and uh, Moritz Siebert regarding what's happening in trend following right now, and where we do take very detailed questions from the audience as well, but there are also you know hundreds of of episodes with interviews with some of the best traders in the world. Really, uh, a lot of my uh, competitors, in fact. And then we also do something I think quite unique, uh, a little bit special, and that is every day. We publish two things that might be useful. One, we publish a what we call a trend barometer 
operometer, I guess it's called. And and this really gives people an idea of which markets are trending and what the environment is for trend following, something which is very hard to quantify. And a lot of the big, big firms in our business have actually used that barometer to explain to their clients, especially the more difficult periods. And I also published something called the Daily Market Score, which uses a number of different trend-following techniques to calculate a score for about 44 different markets and where people can see exactly what, based on these methodologies, and I'm not saying these are are, are the best ones, but it certainly gives the people an idea of what is happening in terms of trend uh, strength, trend signals, changes in positions right now. So so there's some very specific daily uh, information. There's obviously other resources as well. And and finally, I would just say if, if people really want to dig in, and as you rightly say, a lot of it is driven by compliance, you know, reach out to a trend-following firm and start the process. But that will also require uh, accreditation for us to share anything in terms of, of performance numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But hopefully a lot of your listeners are accredited investors anyways. Nails, I want to thank you for a terrific interview. We're going to have to leave it there in the interest of time. Listeners, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, Macro Voices Spotlight is a new format. We are committed to introducing sponsored content in a tasteful way where we really look for topics that we think will, in fact, be of interest to our audience. Please give us your feedback and let us know how you like this format and the way that we're approaching it. You can email me at info at macrovoices.com or on Twitter. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Please register your free account at macrovoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices.